Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire on the most perfect day for cricket. Hello, it's Richard Heller on a um, magnificent day for cricket here in South East London. And Richard, we have the perfect subject for discussion. Last week, we brought on the superlative international and obituaries uh, editor of The Wisdom, Stephen Lynch. He talks so well and so brilliantly about biographies that we'd left behind vast tracts of the subject of this year's Wisdom unmolested. And we've come back to investigate them. Well, we have, and we're very grateful that he's um, come back for a second innings to uh, to help us in that purpose. Uh, Stephen, welcome back on this beautiful day, and um, thank you for joining us again. It's a nice day here too for the for the follow on. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's a follow on. I think it's a. <laughs> I think it's just. I think it's your second innings, and um, you're going to set a big total with the decoration. I imagine, <laughs> Stephen. I have to say. Hope this isn't immodest, but I would like to thank Wisdom for a very, very nice um, tribute to this very podcast. It's on page 182 of the current edition. I'll just mention that number again, 182. James Gingell does a review of cricket podcasts, and he says, Peter O'Borns and Richard Heller's On Cricket evokes the plum and dust of parliamentary tea rooms. Never more than when Lord Geoffrey Archer of Western Supermare claims that Ian Botham was Victoria Cross material, only with far more open-minded hosts. Tim Wheatmore persuades them 2020 does have nuance. Mickey Bowes that cricket is the only world sport run by non-white people. It's outwardly fusty, inwardly modern, social and political as much as sporting. In some ways, it was the almanac the Wisdom Cricket Podcast's monthly magazine. To be described as the almanac is really a, a supreme compliment, which I'm not sure I deserve. But thank you very much, James Gingell, a very perceptive uh, journalist and analyst and very definitely one to watch in the future. I um, uh, sent an email to James Gingell uh, saying how much we'd appreciated this and passing on a remark, Richard, which you'd made to me that, and only somebody who knows you very well and knows of your enormous enthusiasm for a knowledge of P.G. Woodhouse. You said to me that this uh, praise in wisdom mattered as much to you as Whiffle's care of the pig did to Lord Emsworth. Well, it, it, it is. It was balm to the soul, as, as Whiffle always was to Lord Emsworth in moments of crisis. Yep. And uh, uh, Mr. Gingell is off walking from... Land's End to John O'Groats as we speak, I believe. That's what he told me he was doing. Really? That's right, yes. He, he used to work for Wisdom. He was our editorial assistant three or four years ago and a very bright chap. No, he's just been working for Patrick Valance. I don't know in what capacity, but he, he said that he's... Uh, with, 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 he didn't say this. He, with, with coronavirus, less of an issue. He's off, off he is <laughs> walking across Britain. <laughs> Stephen, we were so fascinated by the obituaries last time, and we still have some we'd like to come back to, but we didn't have time to deal with the very big issues covered in Wisdom this year, particularly in, um, not just in the Almanac itself, but uh, 
also in the notes by the editor. And this has been a regular feature of the editorship of Lawrence Booth since, um, I think it's 2012, isn't it? But um, Wisdom's, you know, always looked for issues bigger than cricket. Yes, that's right. This is Lawrence's 10th Wisdom. He's grown into it pretty well, I think. (laughs) He's got the great advantage of being on the circuit in the England bubble, if you like, before they had a biosecure one, which, which helps you know what's going on to an extent you just can't have when you're not part of the inner press pack. But apart from that, he's also very good. He, he, uh, I want to say that the, the front of the book is his area. If the obituaries are my bit, then the content section at the front is very much Lawrence's zone and it's done very well, I think. And I think most people would be surprised at the care and attention that goes into it. What I think is remarkable about Wisdom as it's emerged under Lawrence Booth is its, his, it's, its sense of history and sense of society. It engages with the great issues of our age and then puts them into a very rich historical perspective. For instance, the Wisdom's coverage of Black Lives Matter, which is a, a grave, grave issue of our time, is very respectful and uh, wouldn't you agree, Richard, very sort of profound? Yes, it is. We mentioned Michael Holding's impassioned comments on Black Lives Matter, but there's um, also the very important piece by Ebony Rainford Brent, not only detailing her own uh, experience of racism in English cricket, but um, one that offers a little more optimism. Um, and it's one which suggests that English cricket has at last woken up to the racial barriers in, in its midst. There's also, I think, a lot of historic depth in the way Risdon's tackled the issues around Black Lives Matter, around racism and discrimination. It emerges in Harry Pearson's profile of Leary Constantine, which, of course, he's written a very great book about, and the racism which um, Constantine encountered, not least and saddest, really, from white English professional cricketers. And then I was fascinated by the essay um, by Tom Holland, which begins by describing the mysterious artefact which might show a West Indian slave playing cricket. And and it goes from there and it sort of follows... Tell tell us what the artefact is, Richard. The artefact is a a belt buckle which um, depicts a... um, a chap playing cricket. He's been, and as a matter of fact, he's a batsman who's been clean bowled. Um, but very significantly, he's wearing what looks to be a slave collar from the West Indies around the late 18th century or very early 19th century, just before slavery was abolished formally. Abolished through slavery. Slavery was abolished, I think, in 1834. So we can date it to before then. Mm. Um, now, there's some doubt about the provenance of this, art- of, of this artifact, but Tom Holland uses it as, um, really as a vehicle for examining cricket as an escape from, from slavery and subjection. It was something that gave opportunity to, um, to black people to um, express themselves and actually achieve at least temporary equality with uh, their white masters. And um, as he's follows C.L.R. James in saying it was something that's very important in shaping black consciousness. What I think is so important about Wissier's Wisdom is the sort of the various ways it comes at the 
the Black Lives Matter issue. Well, it is. And I, I think the, the, the really overall message one gets from Wisdom, from all its coverage, it's mentioned several times in um, uh, Lawrence Booth's editor's notes, um, is that these are issues that have been ignored for, for too long. Um, and um, it is extraordinarily important that not just English cricket, but global cricket takes them on board and recognises the huge legacy of um, inequality and subjection and and slavery and oppression that um, black people generally and black cricketers have um, contended against. The other area where wisdom is being very progressive now is, of course, its coverage of of women's cricket and the uh, which again has been a legacy. Wisdom for many years was like the rest of society was 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 male dominated and i think that it's incredibly important the way that wisdom is finally addressing that de- deficit do you have sort of editorial discussions about this uh, stephen uh, well we decided a few years ago or it was decided by lawrence mainly that the women's coverage should be improved it should increase a, a little we now cover all their all the international series get scores and a report or a review. The the big events, like last year there was a, a 2020 World Cup, which just escaped coronavirus. That's quite largely covered in this book. Can I bowl you a googly? Would you say that wisdom is woke? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I rather hope it I, is. <laughs> well, I, I suppose it is. I, I think it's moving with the times and it adjusts to the times. So I hope, I hope it is getting there. <laughs> I think it's actually become, I don't like the term woke, but I think it's, whereas it used to be a react, generally a reactionary force and something that, um, or at least a conservative one, it is now very much a progressive one. I think it's a progressive force uh, on Black Lives Matter. I think it's a progressive force on on issues of class, which come up once um, in this year's edition as well. I think it's... Um, let's, let's stay, Richard, with class. You're exactly right. And of course, the other thing, which it's which we'll come on to, is progressive on issues of the environment, where we will come on to Tanya Aldred's extraordinary work she's been carrying out there. But let's stay with class. I mean, wisdom was the embodiment of the uh, almost the English public school system in some ways, or the English class order, uh, with all those public school matches covered with such loving and meticulous detail, and that has gone this year, hasn't it? We think this might be quite important. Well, it's, it, Stephen, it's gone rather as, as an accidental result of the pandemic. It wasn't a deliberate decision, was it, to excise public school cricket? No, no, there, there basically wasn't any significant public school cricket. There wasn't any point putting in averages and so forth. Um, I I assume it will be back in some form. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Another historical injustice. It's not about black people. It's not about women people. But it's a class injustice. In other words, the way in which public schools were covered uh, so mightily, uh, and uh, say the Lancashire or Yorkshire leagues, which are far more higher standard and far more significant, uh, weren't barely covered at all. Was a 
ferocious statements of where wisdom stood. And, and I sense that's changing too. I think so, yes. There was also, I was told years ago that the public schools were in there because the parents of the boys who were in the averages might buy the book. Um, so I suppose they were playing to their audience a bit, the people they thought were more likely to buy the book. But. Whereas people, it was a, this assumption, massive assumption was made that somebody who played in the Lancashire Leagues wouldn't buy the book. Is that right? Uh, I, I suppose so. I'm talking about a long time ago. But <laughs> yes. The Lancashire Leagues have... They've always been there, but I think it was more of a... Yeah, but they were covered in about a page. It was usually about, about two-page summary and, a, you know, a few, you know, maybe the, the leading averages um, and a gain in the balance. For years and years, of course, you know, public schools and their averages occupied far more space than the whole of women's cricket globally. Yes, far more space than that. Yeah. It's obviously a bit strange. They, they have been cut back, the school section. We don't have great tables of their averages and... I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure it will be ever cut out because it's a sort of historical thing. But oh yes, we, of course. We do try to we do try to get more schools in. They're not absolutely public schools, but they have to be playing to a decent standard to make it you know, sort of comparable to to have the statistics there. So, but it's also um, as Robert Wyndham points out in his piece on the you know the schoolboy cricketers of the year, it goes through them. They're all basically all public school boys, but all the examples he picked out usually went on to major deeds in first-class cricket. And, you know, as a, rec- you know, as a record, Wisdom is, you know, uh, still a, a source book for the, the youth and the upbringing of, of famous cricketers. It's, in a sense, going to have to look at public school cricket to provide that record service, so long as public schools remain you know, the main passageway into into major cricket in England. And that's a theme that comes out in, in Robert's article very, very strongly. And particularly when he talks about the, you know, the the players from poorer backgrounds and, um, and the, you know, the black players who've progressed only because they've escaped from the skate school system by sports scholarships into public schools. Yeah, I suppose you have to... I don't know if it's a healthy thing, but the majority of the England test team come from public schools, isn't it? Seven or eight of your average team that England would field are probably from schools that were in wisdom. Uh, mm. Maybe do, do we perhaps should explain about Robert Winder's piece that this replaced the school's coverage we normally have, and we went back to 1900 and have appointed a, a wisdom schools cricketer of the year for each year. Uh, that's a, an award that actually started in 2007 when Johnny Bairstow won it. So mm. we've gone back from 1900 to 2006 and made another award for whoever was the school's player of the year. And that was an interesting trawl through the back pages of Wisdom. It's a very interesting trawl, but it, as I said, their subsequent careers, nearly all of them, you know, shows a very high achievements in cricket. And so it is a useful thing that that uh, Wisdom records their, their early deeds. It's a useful thing for historians. But as I say, it does, you know, it is st- striking that even now, 2021, public schools are still, independent schools are still such an important you know, passageway, conduit into English first class and test cricket. And that it's, um, that so many players have to escape into the public school system from the state system 
um, to get a chance of advancing cricket. I think that's a very striking theme. Uh, to put it in a, another way, uh, wisdom is starting to break through the well, and cricket is starting to break through the glass ceiling, which stops women getting getting on, but it hasn't broken through the class seat ceiling, which stops working young men and women from poor backgrounds from getting into the game. I suppose that's a whole different conversation, isn't it? That uh, state school cricket is not very strong, and it's an expensive sport to put on at well any level, but at, at your average school down the road, it's probably not a very high priority, is it? Well, it isn't. It's, 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 it's expensive in land, it's expensive in equipment, it's expensive in what's time-consuming now in schools, tell me, in terms of health and safety regulations. And, you know, they understandably concentrate scarce resources on, on other sports. And there may still be a bit of a hangover of the pressure against sort of competitive sports, you know, took over a lot of school physical activities. But, uh, you know, it, it, it really, uh, you know, the, the social base of um, English cricket, it's not just English cricket. We've, you know, we've heard this sort of problem happening in Pakistan where there's, um, you know, where they're so passionate about cricket and there's such mass following of cricket. The actual opportunities to play top-class cricket or to get a grounding in, um, you know, in proper cricket are really are shrinking socially. Just to follow on, Richard, there from our discussion last week of Prince Philip, you know, and the uh, there's a great Tory party thing about celebrating his immense life with the Royal Yacht, a new Royal Yacht. It would be much more appropriate if uh, we acknowledged the incredible work he did for public parks and common recreational, sporting recreational facilities dating, which, as we said last week, date back to his time was in the 1930s when he learned his cricket on a public park. He was really keen on this idea. He was a great progressive administrator in the English game. And the best way, I'm trying to drive it into the boneheads of the uh, kind of Tory propagandists to celebrate that immense life of his actually would be to preserve public sporting facilities so people who don't get very privileged backgrounds can find facilities to play cricket. And create more of them. <laughs> exactly so. <laughs> and create more of them, indeed. Um, Stephen, I'd like to move on to the pandemic coverage in Wisdom, which is very important. Uh, I think the, the pandemic coverage will be a resource for historians of the pandemic, not just for uh, historians of cricket. I think that the, the timeline that uh, Wisdom produced of the impact of the pandemic is really a you know, striking demonstration of the the impact of the the pandemic on on global society as a whole. Uh, It's got certain incidental lessons to it. Uh, The fact that Germany, a minor power in cricket, actually played matches sooner than England, which still claims to be the centre of the game. Um, But I was also very struck by Duncan Hamilton's um, very uh, moving essay, I found, about... um, you know, the impact of the pandemic in sort of draining English life of something familiar and precious to people. And um, I think there are other parts of wisdom too that capture the um, the longing for cricket that was um, the emptiness that was created by the pandemic among cricket lovers. Yes, yeah, so I, I suppose we're slightly unusual, but our whole sort of annual rhythm is 
geared to cricket and you get to June and there's a Lord's Test coming and from July up to Old Trafford or something and, and, and that just didn't happen. So you never really knew at any point whether you were in April or August or, or where. And the, the, whole, the whole season was out of rhythm. And there, well, I think there is a loss by people who go to one, one match a year or something. They couldn't even do that. Mm. And there was a very good phrase in um, Lawrence Booth's notes about losing the ritual of asking the score, <laughs> which uh, has, has been very important in, in British life for so long. Um, you've made a, I think, a, you and Patrick Kidd, between you, I think, made a very significant contribution to pandemic coverage because you put it in, in context. You put it in the, uh, compared it to the coverage of the Spanish flu epidemic in, um, you know, from 1918 to 1920. Um, Spanish flu epidemic killed, as you say, at least 17 million people, possibly 100 million people. The toll from the present pandemic has just reached three million, but wisdom virtually ignored it, didn't it? It did. It was striking, actually, looking back at the, the very little they mentioned it. The what I concluded was that they they had just come out of the Great War and they didn't really want another depressing story, and so they they tended not to mention it much. There's the odd mention of influenza. There's a few obituaries that say died of influenza and. Generally speaking, it's hardly mentioned at all that it's, thank goodness, we got back to playing cricket in 1919. And that was obviously what was on Wisdom's mind more. Obviously hoping, I'm sure, that the epidemic went away, but but not really wanting to hark on about, here's another year of bad news, I suppose. Mm. I got the impression from Patrick's essay, I hadn't read those wartime Wisdoms myself, but I got the impression, Patrick Kidd surveys the the editions that were produced during both world wars, slightly different in tone. The um, Great Wars editions were rather, you know, were solemn and very mournful. The um, the Second World War editions, he says, were slightly more optimistic in tone and look forward to the return of cricket. But in both cases, I get the impression that the editors concerned really didn't want to talk about the war at all. Um, they talk about the Obviously, they have to talk about the casualties, the cricketers that are that are killed. But I think there's this. I, I read in in his essay, at any rate, this sort of striving for a return to cricket as representing normality. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, maybe I think there's less of the outside world in all of those wisdoms. So maybe they were thinking this is a this is a cricket book. We'd better not bang on about the war or something. I, I, I we obviously don't really know. There wasn't. In the First World War, all cricket just about stopped. There was quite a lot of cricket during the Second World War. Army teams and schools teams and things played at Lords. There's a famous picture of people lying on the ground as a V V one went over. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you're probably right. There was more optimism about cricket in the Second World War, I think. Mm. So the um, it wasn't just cricket. It, the the sporting life. I when the sporting life closed, which was the great racing paper. I, I did some research into it, and I it, it in, the Second World War was marked by two paragraphs at the bottom left of the Sporting Life saying Second World War the war has been declared, uh, you know. But the big banner head banner stories were you know the card at Kempton Park and what's the favourite for the Derby and so on. It's quite, it's quite uh, sort of the people maybe kept sort of stricter boundaries in those days. 
I'd, well, just to go back to obituaries for a minute, Patrick um, also quotes Rupert Brooks' wisdom obituary, which I think is was very characteristic of a certain kind of obituary in, at, at the era. It sort of dwells on his cricket prowess as a rugby schoolboy, and then very much as an afterthought, it adds yes. he had gained considerable reputation as a poet. Yes, very good. <laughs> Yeah. Is it, it's reminiscent, isn't it, of your of Sam Beck of the of the wisdom uh, obituary of Sam Beckett? Well, it is, yeah. Um, and um, yes, Samuel Beckett again gets a only Nobel Prize winner to have played first class cricket, and his cricket achievements at um, school and Trinity College and Gentlemen of Ireland get most of the coverage. You know, <laughs> it's almost as if the rest of his life was well, something of much. a letdown after well, his early. Of, yeah. Achievements. Pretty much so. Later, he turned to literature, eventually <laughs> winning the Nobel Prize. You know, but um, then it ends, ends very optimistically. But he never lost his interest in cricket. You know, Samuel Beckett. And I think Stephen, that was a rather a style of wisdom obituary that um, famous people were in. You know, primarily as as cricketers or for their cricket connections, and I think. Now, um, in recent years, you've managed to kind of shift the balance and people get, people are included, obviously, in your obituaries for cricketing reasons, but their, their achievements outside the game are the, are the ones that count, aren't they? Yeah, yes, I, I think that's right and probably the right way to do it. I, I think the, the major change for the obituaries, and sorry to bang on about them, I think was when Matthew Engel took over as editor, which, I, which was 1993, and he spruced up the whole book, I think made... made he was the start of the modernising the book, and the obituaries suddenly didn't shy away from telling you that someone had been put in jail or whatever, and they focused on what you knew them for, rather than the fact they may have once taken five wickets from Trinity College. Stephen, I noticed in the obituaries this this year, and perhaps it's true every year, there's a very big spread of countries involved, apart from the apart from England and the UK. There are obituaries from every test-playing country, led by India, but also including Canada, Fiji, Iceland, Latvia, Malaysia, Netherlands, Papua New Guinea. Um, and I th- thought that was a very striking demonstration of wisdom as covering the global game. Uh, yes, I hope so. They're, they're, most of those are international players. The, all 2020 games by ICC members now are full internationals, as long as they fulfill certain criteria. So you've got an awful lot of international players out there. Mm. And I noticed um, that um, Bishan Beatty is a very frequent sort of contributor of, um, of comments uh, on, the, <laughs> on the Indian players um, who've passed away, um, particularly, you know, some of the lesser-known Ranji Trophy players he encountered. He seems to be a prolific source. Uh, yes, he's he's great because he's a very colourful speaker. Um, he doesn't hold back. And sometimes I look at the uh, Indian newspapers and there's a very handy quote from Bishan Bedi on there. And, and sometimes you think, well, I'm not going to get anything better than that. So you put it in. Mm. He's rather a wonderful figure, isn't he, Bishan Bedi, in all kinds of different ways? He is, yes. He was an unlikely looking player, I suppose, wasn't he? He was sort of not entirely slim and fantastic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Fantastic turban and a, a beautiful bowling action. So he was one to watch. You couldn't take your eyes off him in the field, really. Mm. There's one of his comments is on 
His contemporary who died uh, last year, um, Rajinder Gaul, who was a great left-arm spinner, was sort of kept out of the Indian test side by um, by Bishan Bedi. And um, Bishan's very generous to him, as, as well he might be. Yes, I, I gather it was a sort of 50-50 decision between Goel and Bedi when, well, Nad Carney, who we talked about the other day, was coming to the end of his career as their left-arm spinner. And Bedi got the nod, as they say, and Goel never played at all. Won no. one game as 12th man. Mm. Yep. But he was an absolute power in the Ranji Trophy. Um, very feared. I think Rajinder Gold was rather more of a Nud Carney sort of bowler. He was absolutely accurate. He never gave you a bad ball. And of course, Bishan flighted the ball, gave you a little bit more chance, and then sort of lured you, lured batsmen to their doom, didn't they? <laughs> That's right. It's, it's yes. very right like being Mill Reef in the age of Arkell. You're magnificent. You're a brilliant bowler yourself, but you're just very bad luck. There's a, one of the greatest bowlers of all time, also. Commanding the place in the team. That's right. I think Goal finished. I think he's a long way clear as the leading wicket taker in the Ranji Trophy. So he had to be content with that. It sounded like he wasn't too upset about it. No. Um, the um, um, another obituary. I think we ought to dwell on. I think a, a great modern player, a great character of the game, and one who was much admired. Though uh, was Dean Jones. Yes. Well, yes. Taken well before his time. Heart attack, age fifty-nine. I mean, it's no age at all these days, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will have seen him sort of twinkling down the pitch and smashing the ball through the covers and infuriating the bowler by grinning at him. <laughs> he was a big character and a, a, a big loss because he was a, a, a prominent coach too. Now uh, last year, mm. very. I mean, a often controversial figure, but um, and he made sadly one. Terrible remark about Hashim Amma, and uh, it's obviously recorded in wisdom. But the obituary of him gives very much more, you know, depth to his to his character than um, uh, than one of it certainly than I'd realised, and um, you know, shows a very good cricket mind in, in Dean Jones as well as being a, you know, exceptionally courageous and um, you know, an assertive sort of player. Yeah, he he was one of the first that wanted the third umpire to call front foot no balls. He, he actually wanted the umpire to be standing on the pitch next to the line, which might have got a bit busy sometimes. And he also thought now we had the technology that big hits over 85 metres or something should count as eight instead of six. Mm, all, you know, very in, you know, interesting innovations. Well, yeah, thought-provoking stuff, yeah. Mm. And I couldn't resist adding one obituary, which uh, shows a fascinating second life to me, and that's... Um, Mr. Gale, G-A-Y-L-E, I'm not sure if he was related to Chris Gale, who was a Jamaican umpire who died recently, but uh, as I say, his second life fascinated me. Gale spent his working life in Jamaica's Ministry of Agriculture and was an expert on pimentos, an important local crop. (laughs) Apparently he wrote the book on pimentos, yeah. Well, I wonder if he ever discussed the, the, the pimento with his fellow umpire, Ses Pepper. <laughs> sorry, I was dying well to get done, that Richard, I, I'm yeah. really sorry, but I was dying to get that one in. But um, it, it is, a, you know, another side of a, a person's life to be a, a master of um, pimentos. And um, perhaps one day there'll be... Um, you know, a cricketer who's a master of the pig and will write a, com- a companion to Whiffle's great book. Isn't Alistair Cook almost there, Richard? Yeah, he, 
Yeah, he's a far, farmer in his spare time. Yeah, yeah, a farmer, yeah. Yes. But I think we, we really should now uh, take our leave of the obituary section with great reluctance because there's another, I think, particularly important theme in wisdom, both this year and in, in all recent years, and that's cricket and the environment. And that's Tanya Aldred's now annual essay. Um, very important, I think, because cricket faces major environmental challenges in, in many countries, including our own. You know, we've seen floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, killed cricketers, destroyed the, the grounds that they play on. And also, as Tanya pointed out, last year we see more and more cricketers being forced to play in extreme heat or in air that's been poisoned. And then we've got um, the challenges of water management, water shortage to grass pitches. Um, we've got the scourge of plastic on um, affecting pitches. We've got um, threat even to the supply of willow um, for cricket bats. And these cr- problems are almost totally ignored by the cricketing authorities, um, which is why I think Tanya's essay is so tremendously important each each year. How long has it been going for, Stephen, that, that particular section? Uh, I think this is the third year, or possibly the fourth. Um, I, I think she does very well in not rehashing what she said before. It would be quite simple to do more or less the same thing every year in a different order, and she certainly doesn't do that. I think one one theme this year is the the way tours are organised. When you, you your average pre-coronavirus tour of India, you sort of pinballed around the country from the west coast to the east coast to the north and the south with no consideration of do you really have to take another plane? You could go round in a round in a bit more of a circle. I remember 1992 World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Sri Lanka had the most ridiculous itinerary you've ever seen. Perth one day, Wellington three days later, North Queensland two days after that. It was absolutely absurd. And this is all having an effect and, and somebody needs to point it out. And Joe, so you, what, you're, you actually have a practical solution here, don't you, for some of the problem? Well, you, you could arrange a tour <laughs> so that you didn't go to somewhere 2,000 miles away next. You went 300 miles a bit closer. That's not such a problem in England because you can... You can get around a bit more easily, but Australia and India are such enormous countries. That yes, enormous countries. You you don't really want your players on a train like the body line tourists were, but 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 surely you could. Why not? You see, I think <laughs> the trains are much uh, neglected as a method of transport. Uh, you know, the England team in or to go by to Karachi. You know, the Karachi to Lahore, as Richard and I know, is a glorious journey, <laughs> and I can't for the life of me think why that can't be arranged as a way of getting from A to B safer as well in Pakistan. First class air conditioned, of course, but yeah, that's perfectly straightforward. That well, it, it sounds sounds good to me. Maybe post coronavirus, now they're all used to being in bubbles. Perhaps they will be. One well, number. This, uh, Tony's essay this year, uh, as you say, it is about that. It's, it's about um, the insensate demand for air travel, but these contains, unusually contains some recognition by the authorities that, um, you know, that this problem's got to be fixed. And the head of the, I, the new um, head of the ICC um, says that the international schedule is, is unsustainable, doesn't he? Yes, that's right. Um, the, in English cricket, a lot of the counties have got 
uh, people actually working on it. The MCC has uh, something called a sustainability officer, and they try and try and educate you away from the fact that you have to have six separate plastic glasses for your beer during the average day. You know, that, it's just madness these days. And I was very struck um, within the environmental section. I was very very struck by. Hugh Chevalier's um, little essay on the um, the Extinction Rebellion cricket team. <laughs> <laughs> yes, who'd have thought it? <laughs> well, who'd have thought it? Um, if, if they want to get in touch, we'd be very happy. My team, I think, might give them a fixture, and I know some others who'd be happy to play them um, on, on environmentally friendly terms. And of course, these days they'd have to. Everybody has to take their own tea, so we'll um, don't have any problems meeting um, any um, requirement for vegan for a vegan cricket tea. But I think it's you know a really striking demonstration of you know the change in wisdom that it should cover extinction rebellion at all, let alone cover it sympathetically. Yes, it was. It, it's such an unusual story, isn't it? And <laughs> we may have people who buy wisdom every year, but you also have to, to try and appeal to new readers as well. And, and for them, finding surprising things in there, whichever part, surely is going to help. And, and, and that was very interesting and something not many people would have known about. Well, that takes us into a very interesting subject. Is the, does wisdom survey its readership and is, are the, you know, the demographics and the characteristics of readers changing along with, um, you know, as the almanac is changing itself? I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, we, we have done some uh, research over the years, and I'm not sure when we last did a, a sensible or a last did a proper survey. It's always interesting to wonder who does buy it. I, I think there are a lot of people who have a run of the book that perhaps their father started or grandfather or something. Um, but that just wouldn't sustain it forever. The numbers keep dropping off. So, so we've got to get some new people in. How is it doing at the moment? As, as do you understand? Uh, I, I haven't seen whether we're top of the list this year. It usually goes quite high in the old Sunday Times list, um, I, but I haven't seen that. Now, your international. Uh, what does it involve being international editor of, of Wisdom? <laughs> we we tackled. Um... We worked out your, what you do on obituaries, and I can't say what a glorious job you do you, you it's wonderful but international editor what does that mean well i suppose the the international tours of which there are loads they tend to come my way they don't all because i can't do them all but which one are you doing at the moment i, I think i'm on the big one at the moment uh, afghanistan versus ireland fascinating now how's, where's that tell us about that how, where's it uh, being well, played and... it, well, it was quite interesting it's more interesting perhaps than it sounds because it was supposed to be played in oman yeah, and and Al Amarat was going to be the latest international venue, but because of COVID, it was moved back to the UAE. So it was played in a more familiar place in Abu Dhabi, Afghanistan, as they nearly always do. Won all the twenty twenty games. They've got got an astonishing record in twenty twenty. I think they've well, Asghar Afghan, their captain, has won more twenty twenty internationals than anybody else. He's, I think, well, during this series, he passed Dhoni, and he's he's won forty two out of fifty two as captain. Or he had done. They've got to have a chance in the World 2020 World Cup this year, haven't they? They they have. Yeah, they're a strong, hard hitting side, aren't they? They they didn't, I think, do themselves justice in the, in the World Cup in England, but they're a, they're a threat. They may be more of it. How many of their players are IPL players? Afghan at the moment. Uh, there's certainly two. There's Rashid Khan, who's a, a major force, and I think Mujib Zadran, the they call him a mystery spinner, the, the other spinner. 
Yeah. I'm not sure there are any others, are there? I can't think. That's two world-class players, isn't it? It's Mm. yeah. Uh, The um, and Ireland. How did they get on? I mean, uh, terrifying uh, facing playing Afghan (laughs) in the UAE. I was said. You you have to worry, I think, about Ireland's player base. Just how many players they've got. But they they do all right. I think it would be nice if they got more matches. They haven't had a Test match since they bowled out under eighty five. So they're just not playing enough, really. Not not helped, obviously, by the COVID situation. So that that's that's how you that's what international editor basically does is to do the well tour I suppose report. it does yes yeah. it looks after the tour reports and makes sure they're all there and uh, branches out into obituaries from time to time <laughs> and then there's loads of proofreading for the rest of the book so, so you're already working on next year's <laughs> edition are you yes yes already I think I've got four tours here and some of the others have got some of the other tours so we don't just sort of start in October we'd never finish it Right, so it's all round. It's like painting the fourth bridge, isn't it? Yes. Is, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yes. Mm-hmm. With with batting averages attached. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things which you get must get a special insight into, Stephen, is the economics of world cricket. COVID struck me as being very cruel to the the non major countries, which almost now is including South Africa. I hated the way. Australia just cancelled its its tour of South Africa, even though South Africa bent over backwards, as far as I could tell, to have them. Was that based on COVID grounds, is what Australia said, or do you think there's something else going on there? I I really don't know, to be honest. Um, it was blamed on COVID grounds. And By Australia, also... but, but there was a heavy briefing from South Africa that they really moved heaven and earth to make it safe for Australia to come and they kept on Australia kept on setting new conditions each one of which was met the trip that what what is just frightening is if suddenly certain countries get excluded from world cricket well yes I think you want a much more level playing field generally don't you but uh, I think it's always been like this we, we've just talked about Ireland I mean Ireland need more matches and more exposure but nobody really wants to play them because they don't make money from the from the matches or don't make much. And we had this thing with the big three a few years ago, England, Australia and India. That was rolled back a bit, but I'm not sure that it was entirely overcome. And what you're talking about, the South African series, there didn't seem to be much of a problem with having India there for three months. So, Yeah, <laughs> uh, so I mean, Australia, if you look back into the history, Australia, South Africa is one of the momentous encounters and suddenly to have it fall off the international schedule is a little bit chilling. Yes, there's been some phenomenal series between them over the years, haven't there, going right back. But uh, South Africa are a bit, bit of a poor relation at the moment, for whatever reason. I, th- I think just the economic reasons, I think. I'd love to see Wisdom look at that cancellation in an essay this next year. Uh, I'll pass it on. <laughs> Stephen, um once again, it's been delightful having you with us. It's given us a chance to explore the major dimensions outside cricket, um, which covered in Wisdom this year, enable us to have another look at um, the obituary section and its many delights. And um, I hope we've given some uh, thoughts on next year's Wisdom, which you tell us is already um, being planned and in, already in progress. 
that's something we very much look forward to and perhaps <laughs> we'll invite you in advance to come back and uh, join us in um, 2022. But for now, uh, it has to be thank you and goodbye from me, Richard Heller. And goodbye from me, Peter Oborn in Wiltshire. Thank you very much. Thank you.